Today's episode of This Week on Broadway is being brought to you by Pretty Much Pop. On Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast, a musician, an actress, and a sci-fi writer get deep yet funny about TV, film, games, music, comedy, theater, and more. Why do we binge watch? Should adults play video games? Does live music work on TV? Why are there so many women into true crime? Upcoming guests will include Lucy Lawless, Yakov Smirnoff, Dr. Drew, and many other luminaries. Check it out at prettymuchpop.com. to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, July 21st, 2019. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felician, Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His play God Shows Up is now in performances at the Actors Temple Theater on 47th Street. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Peter, we only have a limited amount of time to see God Shows Up, right? Oh, yeah. Today's the closing, in fact. Um, But uh, nevertheless, it's been a very good run. We've been around uh, since January, so uh, I'm very pleased with what happened. And God bless everybody attached to it. I mean, Eric Krebs, the producer, who put up every dime. And what producer does that that anymore? Uh, Certainly. And uh, the actors who were so wonderful are... And uh, I will always be in the dead. Maggie Bofield, uh, Leanne Hutchinson, um, and uh, playing the female roles, and uh, certainly Christopher Sutton and Neil Mayer, uh, who played um, the evangelists in the play, and um, Lou Libertori, who's been with us since day one and uh, has um, been a really wonderful presence as God. And the wonderful man who got all these actors and got them to do such wonderful performances, Christopher Scott, for whom I'll be forever grateful. Um, and so uh, what's really nice, too, is that uh, other theaters have at least taken an interest and say they're going to look at the place. So we'll see. There may be another production down the road. I hope so, of course. But nevertheless, even if there isn't, this has been a wonderful experience. Oh, so good to hear. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome back from your trip. We are very excited to get a Washington, D.C. report later on this morning. So, first up in our review section... Peter, you got over to see Moscow, 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 Moscow. That's six Moscows. And as we discussed previously to recording, that's Moscow times six or Moscow plus five, right? Right. And the reason that it's uh, such a (laughs) redundant title is because it's a riff on the three sisters. Chekhov's wonderful play that deals with um, three sisters who are in the sticks of Russia, uh, not happy where they are, been there a long time. Uh, Their father had them move there and they're always intent about getting back to Moscow because that's where the action is. 
um, and anybody who lives in a, in a big city knows the value of a big city, and, um, and and that's what they're really centering on. In fact, there's there's a wonderful moment where um, uh, uh, Rashinin comes in, and he, he's an officer, and they don't think much of him originally until they find out that he lives in Moscow, in fact, on the same street that um, they've lived on, and then suddenly they're very interested in him, especially the sister Masha, who uh, married a school teacher, and uh, the teacher that she had, who she thought was the sun and the moon but as time went on uh, she didn't think so so anyway it's all about um, trying to get back to the big onion if you will uh, Moscow and uh, this is by Hallie Pfeiffer and you can really tell that Hallie Pfeiffer has paid attention to this play um, it's, uh, she's really gone over it with a fine combed brain, uh, and, uh, it's really very impressive all that she's done with it in terms of knowing the play inside out. Now, uh, a lot of purists are going to have trouble with this play because first off, uh, Masha is played by Chris Perfetti and Chris is not Christopher, Chris is Christine. Um, so, um, so. The thing is that you do have him in a, a black dress, which Masha is um, famous for wearing, um, even though the expression, I am in mourning for my life, comes from a different Chekhov play. Masha is in mourning for her life. But um, anyway, so Chris Perfetti, with no wig, not playing really a, a female impersonator, just wearing the dress, and acting feminine, though, uh, does play Masha. Uh, you also um, have an actor playing Solioni, um, who's atypical casting as well. Uh, let me say this. Matthew Jeffers states on his website that he looks up to Peter Dinklage, literally, because Dinklage is four inches taller. So we do have uh, a lot of atypical casting here. So um, I don't know if that's um, Holly Pfeiffer's idea or if indeed it's a case of uh, director Trip Cullman, who said this might be um, uh, great fun. For that matter, there's a lot of stylization in the play when people laugh. In other words, when somebody tells a joke or says something funny, everybody goes, ha, 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 in unison, and then they stop. So there's <laughs> that type of stylization going on there, uh, as if gags have been shoved into the mouth. So there's a lot of anachronisms, uh, plenty. Um, you're the bomb, wait for it, lines like that. And uh, it does say that the play does take place in the Russian countryside in 1900. So they are sticking to that, but nevertheless, there's a lot of anachronistic. Um, and the first speech that Olga gives about how um, unhappy she is, is laden with um, a four-letter word that uh, isn't as severe as it once was. But still, you know, it's supposed to be 1900, so um, that's what goes on. What also is not made clear in the program, which is always made clear in productions of Three Sisters, is that time does pass. When you see Act One... Uh, that takes place, yes, in 1900, but Act 2 takes place a year or so later, and Act 3 takes place a year or so later. There are no breaks or intermission in this play. This is 95 minutes and out. But um, for those who don't know Three Sisters, it's important to know that time does pass. Now, you may pick it up anyway, um, certainly uh, the fact that... Um, Andre and Natasha, who are simply dating in the first act, have a baby in the second act, uh, does tell you the time has passed. But nevertheless, it's important to realize that one of Chekhov's points is that time does pass and time does take its toll. And there's no question 
that um, things, decisions we make at one point in time are ones that we regret later in time. There's a lot of that going on. So, um, but, but you really have to be impressed with um, the way that she's really paid attention to the play. Uh, I'm the one who does everything, Olga says. And you start thinking, you know, that's really true. I mean, we do see Masha reading a lot. And we do see Arena talking about getting a job, at least in the first act. But it does seem that Olga, who's a, a school teacher, um, does seem to be doing everything around the house. So um, I, I don't know if that's enough um, that uh, Masha should refer to her as the C word, um, because she, uh, complains a bit about that. Uh, you'll hear a bit of a Sondheim song. Uh, don't worry. It's not send in the clowns. You'll hear a Whitney Houston song. Um, and, and, uh, that's played by, um, both of them in, are involved with, uh, Kulgijin, who is the, uh, teacher that we talked about. Um, well, he's got to do something with his time, you know, because his wife is cuckolding him and he's really, um, almost part of that Kubler-Ross thing. Now, uh, you know the thing about uh, denial uh, and leading to acceptance, the five stages of grief when you're when you're dying. He's not quite dying literally, but he is um, dying inside because he knows. He knows his wife doesn't love him anymore, and it's, it's very hard for him. But uh, in this play, because it's shorter, um, he does go from denial to acceptance uh, rather quickly. Um, Ryan Spahn plays the part, and he's very, very good in it. Um, it's a tough role for a lot of actors. But um, Now, um, traditionally, um, Olga has always been um, more of a, uh, the dish rag than uh, the other sisters, as I um, implied. So Rebecca Henderson is an attractive woman who really is one of those rare performances who can act herself into looking less desirable. Uh, of course, the fact that she says some lines like, even when I was born, I looked a little tired, you know, helps there. But Arena gives her a compliment. Oh, but Tabby Gevinson, ah, oh, terrific in this role, terrific, just wonderful. Um, she gives her a compliment about her looks, which is, I'm not going to give it away, because um, it's not a left-handed compliment, but it is the type of compliment that doesn't bring you much pleasure. If somebody said to you this, this specific compliment, you wouldn't feel good about yourself. But Olga does in this play because it's all she's got. Um, you may recall that famous Jack Nicholson line, you use what you got. And, um, and that's what's happening. I mean, this one little thing. That, um, that Arena praises is something that Olga runs with for the rest of the play. So um, I, I didn't like very much the way that Andre asks Natasha to marry him. Now, in the original play, they're all sitting around having dinner. Now, nobody much likes um, Natasha. They feel that she's beneath Andre, that he can do much better. That's what um, certainly Olga does. There's a marvelous moment in the play where she come, Natasha comes in, and Olga immediately criticizes the belt she's wearing. And this is significant because what happens here is that uh, she says, oh, that's the wrong color green for you. Um, that's not doesn't go with that dress. And in the original Chekhov, Natasha says, um, well, you know, it's not really green. It's, you know, and the point is we see a little backbone there. We see the fact that she's not willing to just accept the criticism. She's going to fight back a little bit as best she can. And that's significant because as time goes on, we will see that Natasha has quite the backbone and certainly winds up taking over the entire house. Um, so uh, in this play... Uh, Natasha 
gets really flustered by it and takes off the belt and throws it on the floor. Um, and I don't think that's as good. But anyway, back to the – they're all sitting around the table and Natasha's being teased. And she she runs away from the table and she just doesn't know what to do um, because she, she does feel inferior to these people at that moment in time. And Andre, to make her feel better, all he can think of doing is proposing marriage. And that's what he does. And Chekhov's point is that in situations such as this, people make rash decisions that are going to ruin their lives. That uh, he, he just went to that so quickly and he didn't realize the ramifications of what day-to-day living with Natasha was going to be like. And in fact, I mean, she is, turns out she isn't even faithful to him as, as, as time goes on. But, but here, all that it is, is lust. The fact that uh, he can't keep his hands off her, and, um, and and of course, yes, God knows many men have made decisions on marrying a woman because, indeed, um, the sex was terrific. Absolutely true. I'm not questioning that, but we've heard that so many times. That's a very common thing uh, that we've heard in so many movies, plays, what have you. But it's more interesting to have... Chekhov's take on it that um, one um, to make a woman feel better uh, to propose marriage is something that I if it happens in other plays I don't really know about it so uh, Greg Hildreth is excellent by the way is Andre um, uh, he, it's it, in a way it's sort of sad that he's in this um, door uh, role because he has one of the best smiles in the business and you do see it from time to time Um Sass Goldberg, S-A-S, that's her first name, Sass Goldberg, is the one who plays uh, Natasha. And Pfeiffer sympathizes with her to some degree, and I liked that. I thought that was good, because her conception of Andre is, he won't even, after a while, he doesn't even listen to her. When she's talking to him, uh, he's reading. And so she's giving more of a reason why, indeed, that she would wind up fooling around. So... All right. We also have the wonderful, wonderful uh, Stephen Boyer, uh, who made such an impression in Hand to God as Tusenbach. Now, um, Tusenbach is the one who is really smitten with Arena more than anybody else and really wants her to be a part of his life. And um, and she's not interested. She likes him very much as a friend in this play. That's established. She thinks he's a terrific guy to hang around with. But um, he doesn't quite have the music that makes her dance. She also, in this play, accuses, well, um, let's not say accused, but uh, certainly points out the fact that he may be gay. Uh, to him, she says this directly, and come on, aren't you gay? And, um, and he doesn't quite deny it. And so it brings up an interesting possibility that the reason uh, that he is um, wanting her so badly is so that he can prove something to himself. So that's part of it as well. Uh, but he does get interested in Solioni, and uh, and we get the impression that they might have a relationship. But what does happen is the moment Arena walks into the room, well, that's it for Solioni. So, um, <clears throat> oh, another thing I liked was the fact that um, Chekhov had Andre uh, discover his old university lectures. That um, from his um, college days, okay, um, when he was teaching, and uh, and that's good. You know, you look back at your old lectures and see what you saw. But Halley Pfeiffer, I think, does better by having him finding a diary that he wrote a long time ago. Now, really, imagine if all of us saw our diaries from when we were young, 
and what we thought was going to happen to us and who we were and the big plans we had. There's a wonderful speech at the end of You Can't Take It With You about um, um, <clears throat> Grandpa says um, you know, something like, um, all those plans we made when we were kids, how many people even come close to achieving what uh, they expected or hoped? Um, and this is what um, Andre is looking at, his diary. So I think that's much more effective than um, than indeed just university lectures. So so I, there's a lot of good. There's a lot of stuff that isn't as good. I missed totally totally missed one of my favorite lines in the play and I remember the first time I ever heard it I laughed so hard that people, a bark of a laugh that people turned around to see who was laughing and that is when um, Andre um, has um, uh, uh, gets uh, some information, a letter from uh, Farrapont who's a very old, old man he's delivering the letter and um, indeed um, Andre tries to engage him in conversation because there's nobody else to talk to his wife is not somebody he wants to talk to so he starts talking and the guy's um, pretty deaf. He's 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 an old man. Well, well, what happens here is that um, he offhandedly mentions, um, "Have you ever been to Moscow?" And um, and Farrapont says, "No, it was not God's wish." And uh, it, it, what an easy way to. Uh, say that uh, you're not responsible for your own actions. You know, it, it wasn't God's wish. You know, you could have got to Moscow if you really wanted to get there, you know, so uh, but uh, just to put it on God when it really is responsible. So that's not in the play and I missed it. Uh, the staging is very atypical. Uh, think of a football field with a stand on each side. The technical term for this is cockpit. Uh, that's what uh, it, it's called. But, uh, but you know, this type of staging always does turn out to be a problem um, because, of course, half the people miss things. And um, Solonioni at one point calls Arena a bitch. And on my side of the stage, um, I could see that he didn't mean it from the smile he flashed when he looked our way. But those on the other side were well in their rights to take him seriously. So... Well, anyway, how does it end up? Uh, <laughs> well, if we had gone to Moscow, we would have been happy. Uh, but Pfeiffer essentially asks, who or what has been stopping you? Why didn't you just go? Why don't you go now? I mean, what's the problem? Uh, Chekhov might answer inertia, fear. Uh, but Hallie Pfeiffer has no patience for that in her very 21st century takes. So, so in the end, you may go along with this craziness or think Pfeiffer was crazy to mock a masterpiece. Um, a lot of people who love this play dearly uh, may nod in agreement with Rasheen. And by the way, Alfredo Narciso is very good um, when um, he tells everyone, that's what we're here for on Earth, to suffer. And they may very well feel that, but um, but you know, it, it, it's <laughs> even if you don't like it, this 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 production and this play uh, could be described as the, the feeling you have when you see an accident. That famous expression: "You can't look at it and you can't look away." So, um, and you know, as as ludicrous as some of it is, let's remember the. Chekhov did say his plays were comedies. So uh, I guess Hallie Pfeiffer thought, well, if it's a comedy, let's get some more laughs out of it. And she certainly has. So uh, I, I found it intriguing. Um, I don't know if there's going to be a future for this, but I do feel that um, there is a great deal of worth in this for anybody 
who knows three sisters and has an opinion about three sisters. Okay. So that is Moscow Time 6. It's playing at the MCC. Just extended through August 17th. Right. Um, and uh, it's a small theater, so uh, please get your tickets uh, sooner than later because it is likely to uh, sell out on you. All right. Ne- next up, Michael, you were away last week, uh, leaving us all by our lonesome. But uh, you were seeing three great shows down in D.C., so I call this section MP in D.C., Michael Portantier <laughs> in the District of Columbia. Let's start off with uh, the return of Michael Yuri in Hamlet. So tell us about that. Oh, yes. Uh, yes, this production was done um, about a year ago, uh, roughly. And I think it, uh, you know, you have to really hand it to the Shakespeare Theatre Company because I believe it got uh, mixed, very mixed reviews. Uh, so, and yet they have brought it back. Uh, uh, it, it closes today, by the way, this redo uh, of uh, it. They've brought it back in uh, as part of a initiative that they call Free for All Shakespeare. Uh, so all of the performances were free. Uh, and, you know, that's an incredible gift to a community. And it gave Michael Urie a chance to uh, redo his interpretation of the melancholy Dane, who's not that – well, I mean, he certainly has his melancholy moments in this production. But Michael Urie, as we've stated before – is one of the best comic actors of our generation. And so there was a lot of humor in the performance. Um, And I have to say there were, it seemed like there were quite a lot of young people and maybe even children in the audience. And they seemed to really, really love it. Uh, I'm not used to hearing that much laughter in Hamlet, but um, I have to say it really leavened the, the storytelling and uh, I would even say that this is the best Hamlet I've ever seen as far as the clarity of the clarity of the storytelling I uh, it didn't also hurt that I, I I'm sure the text must have been uh, quite extensively edited because the whole performance the entire running time was just over three hours um, so I don't know the play that well to know to have noticed exactly what they cut out uh, uh, also there were some other um, changes that were noted by the the reviewers and 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 audience members when this production was done the first time directed by Michael Kahn uh, some of the some of the scenes have been switched, not many, but for example, the play begins with Hamlet on stage and the first words out of his mouth are, oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt. Uh, so that speech has been moved to the to the beginning. And by the way, he does pronounce it as solid, not sullied, S-U-L-L-I-E-D, the way it's spelled in the in the text. And that was a, an early sign that this was going to be a very, a very smart and intelligent in production because, you know, why confuse the audience when uh, when it, all you need to do is pronounce it uh, in the in the modern way? Uh, because if they think it means sullied, then then that then they think the line means something completely different than if it means solid. So that was very smart, very smart decision on who whoever's part. Um, and then uh, there wasn't much shifting after that, but but there was some. This is a. Uh, 
uh, generally updated production in terms of the time frame. Uh, we had uh, a very effective moment very, towards the beginning where the ghost of Hamlet's father is first spotted uh, on the on the ramparts or, or whatever. Uh, here he is spotted uh, uh, on a bunch of security cameras by a bunch of security guards who then uh, bring Hamlet uh, up there to, to see what's going on. Um, I was initially disconcerted by the fact that Hamlet was carrying around a gun, uh, which he brandished at several points. And at first it really bothered me, but then I thought, um, well, you know, in the in the original, uh, you know, we're supposed to think he has a knife on him, a dagger, <laughs> uh, at least at some points. So I guess it's really not that different, is it? Uh, I, I guess it's the equivalent. Um, so once I realized that, it didn't bother me as much. Uh, Michael Yuri, uh, of course, he did not play the whole thing comic. And he started out uh, w- with that speech I mentioned, uh, you know, very, very serious and, and, and very – obviously very upset by the death of his father, which he thinks is a murder and, and which turns out to be true. Uh, so then when he uh, used his comic rhythms and, and energy in, in key points throughout the rest of the play, it was extremely, extremely effective. And uh, Michael Kahn is, has just uh, finally officially retired after decades at the helm of the Shakespeare Theater Company, and I think he kept, as I said, the storytelling crystal clear throughout. Um, The cast was quite excellent overall, including the veteran Keith Baxter in uh, actually three roles. He he was the ghost of Hamlet's father. He was also uh, the player king and the gravedigger. Gertrude was beautifully played by Madeline Potter, and um, I, I, I'm told that there was a plus, a bonus uh, in this redo of this production of Hamlet because uh, actually two people that I spoke with who had seen it before said that uh, on this occasion the Ophelia was superior, not not the entire cast uh, was brought back for, you know, whether because of availability or whatever, but whoever, uh, you know, whatever the, whatever the reason, Ayanna Workman was really wonderful as Ophelia. She, she brought, uh, she made the character very touching. uh, And, and I have always thought that that's a very difficult role uh, because in playing her madness, um, one can tip over into, well, bathos or, or perhaps, uh, uh, I mean, it, it can it can come across as insincere or 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 kind of uh, sticky or whatever. But that didn't happen here at all. Um, so that this was really a wonderful production that I had wanted to see in its initial engagement. And for whatever reason, I could not get down there. Uh, so I, I personally think I don't think they did it for me, but I thank the Shakespeare uh-huh. theater company for redoing it. And again, to, to, to give that to uh, a community for free uh, to mount the entire production again is really something, you know, we do, we do have, we still, we obviously still have uh, Shakespeare in the park uh, here in New York, but uh, that, and you know, I, I don't mean to minimize that, but I know that, um, that that can be a little difficult to get into uh, 
because of the the setup of the way the tickets are distributed. And and we've also been hearing that more and more of those tickets are going to uh, high level donors. So. Uh, you know, whatever whatever these companies need to do to to provide free theater or low cost theater, I'm I'm obviously all for it, and bravo to the Shakespeare Theater Company. Um, then I went to see. Uh, it's it's funny. Uh, my theater trip. This one was planned specifically around Hamlet, and I really did enjoy it. Uh, but. Uh, then after I planned that, it turned out that there were two other shows that I was interested in. And one was this new musical, world premiere musical, Blackbeard, at Signature Theater. Um, and this has a book and lyrics by John Dempsey and music by Dana P. Rowe, who I'm sure some of our listeners will recognize as the authors of uh, the political musical The Fix, uh, which um, – it really had quite a, a degree of success some years ago, although it never came to Broadway, at least not yet. I'm wondering if we might see that show resurrected, uh, because it certainly does seem that political musicals and political plays uh, are, are a lot of them are having a new life currently for reasons that are far too obvious to need to be stated. Um, so we'll see. Maybe we'll see that. But at any rate, in the meantime, we have Blackbeard. And this, um, the the best thing about it, I would say, was the score by those two. Um, very, uh, very, very well done and melodious and very enjoyable in a, a you know, I guess a, roughly a pastiche way uh, to it's just sort of not imitate, but evoke the sounds of of um, old pirate songs, and maybe you know there were a couple of moments that maybe called to mind uh, pirates and Penzance, and you know not not in a not in a plagiarism way, but just in the terms of style, and uh, just you know really rousing sea shanties and and. Uh, comedy numbers and things of that sort. Uh, but uh, actually, I would say the, the negative about it was that it, I wasn't really quite sure of the, the tone or the point of view of the whole thing. And I, and I actually place a lot of that um, responsibility on the director, Eric Schaefer. I, um, I, it didn't seem that, that there was a strong decision made as to how funny it should be um and i don't think it should have been camp because that would have i think don't think that would would have been the right decision and we didn't we wouldn't want blackbeard to come across uh exactly like captain hook in peter pan or the pirate king in the pirates of penzance so i don't think that is what we necessarily wanted but as it was uh it just seemed that it was, I guess it was supposed to be just an adventure story um, or maybe something like Captain's Courageous, uh, something of that sort. Uh, there is a there was a younger character who, uh, who who's in it who um, I, I think we're you know supposed to see the story through his eyes largely and it was a really wonderful cast. Chris Hawk uh, played Blackbeard. Uh, there again, Chris Hawk, um, uh, among his other accomplishments, did a, a very successful stint as Miss Trunchbull in Matilda on Broadway. So he has proved himself as a as a very very valuable comedian in that style uh and this show was not uh this performance was not as comic and it uh, and i think that maybe had a lot to do with the direction and also the writing so um 
if this is done again, and I hope it is, they might want to revisit that and and maybe be a little more clear as to the tone of the piece. Uh, But it certainly was um, visually stunning scenic design by Paul Tate Dupuis III, costumes by Eric Teague, lighting design by Chris Lee, sound design by Ryan Hickey. There were lots of um, wonderful effects in it, including a a skeleton army (laughs) that was really quite something to see. Um, And the kids, uh, again, lots of kids in the audience, and they all seem to love it so uh that was something that i was really happy that i got to see because i wasn't even aware of it when i made my initial plan to see the to go to dc and see hamlet um and then the other thing that i was not aware of until about a day or two before i left was that the band's visit was going to be uh, at the kennedy center and that is one of my favorite musicals of recent years i i was so 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 glad when it won the tony as best musical and i think it absolutely deserved it uh i uh it was wonderful to see it again uh and with a with an excellent cast headed by Chelina Kennedy in the role of Dina uh i'm sure many of our listeners have seen her in several things and uh this also gave me a uh, opportunity to see Sasson Gabay in the role of Tufik uh i had seen the band's visit uh when it was off Broadway and then once again when it was on Broadway with Tony Shalhoub in that role both times and he was excellent but then when Tony Shalhoub left the Broadway production quite uh, quickly after it opened I think because of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel uh, his role was taken over by Sasson Gabay who uh, that is interesting because first of all he's so good in the role but also he had played the same role in the film the non-music and the non-musical film that inspired the band's visit uh so i was really happy that i got to see him i had thought i had missed him in the role and he he really was just it was a beautiful performance uh music and lyrics by david yazbek of course book by edamar moses um the audience i if anything uh, seem to love the show even more than when I saw it in New York. DC has very, very wonderful, enthusiastic theater audiences. Um, I I can't quite put my finger on it, but it seems like it seems like maybe <laughs> that they they pay more attention uh, and are more enthusiastic in general. Maybe it's because uh, DC is not quite. Uh, the theater town that New York is. I mean, they have a, a, a lot of stuff, but but still only a fraction is, of what we have here. And so maybe maybe people appreciate things more because they don't see as much. <laughs> I don't, whatever it is, I I have really noticed that, and it's and and it's wonderful to see it. People were uh, my neighbors were talking to me about the show before and after um, at that and and the other two productions, uh, and you know we we had a wonderful back and forth about it. So. Um, to see the band's visit again was a really wonderful thing, and I th- and I must thank our um, listener and and now a good friend of mine, Debbie Schrager. She arranged uh, for me to see Hamlet and Blackbeard, and then I in turn actually I got press tickets for the band's visit, and so I invited her to that. So um, so we had three wonderful shows in in a, in a packed weekend uh, in DC, and. 
and really, I, I'm sure I've said this before, um, if you want um, a, a theater trip that's really not that far from New York, check out uh, you know, both Boston, of course, uh, and DC, uh, because they're, they're really likely to have lots of stuff going on. And it's only, you know, even if you just take a bus, which I usually do, it's only four and a half hours each way. And, um, it's just a whole new, you know, a whole new world, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, uh, of theater and, you know, just right within your reach there. So I had a wonderful, wonderful trip and, I, um, I was so glad that I went. Yeah. Uh, uh, what I'm really tying into here, uh, was you mentioned Michael Kahn, um, mm. you say who's retiring after a long stint, but Michael Kahn is mentioned prominently in William Goldman's book, the season, which, uh, was written 50 years ago and was about the season of 52 years ago. And in that season, he had two shows, the more successful show was here's where I belong that lasted one performance. <laughs> That's the more successful show because the other one called the freaking out of Stephanie Blake played previews and never officially opened. And look at this. Here's a guy who had two failures in one season, um, just a few months uh, between October and March, actually. And look how he survived. Look how he thrived. And it's really quite wonderful. You look at so many of the names in uh, the season and they're either retired or dead, and yet Michael Kahn is still with us and still had this terrific career down there. So um, our hats are off to him. It's amazing, and it's so wonderful that he was around. Uh, there was, um, I think, uh, right around when I was there, I think maybe that same weekend, there was a big uh, gala celebration of his, of his tenure, and he was very much present. So it's, it's wonderful that he, you know, that... That uh, he is very, very much alive and still active um, to uh, to be there to have himself celebrated. And this production uh, was one of his certainly one of his final productions that he directed, maybe the final production as of, as of as of now, uh, whether he goes on to do other things elsewhere and uh, to go out on a high note like this is really just fantastic. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, that wraps up Michael's trip to D.C. Let's head Mm. back north where Peter is going to talk about a documentary called Fiddler, A Miracle of Miracles. So, Peter, tell us about this uh, documentary. Yes, um, it it was as moving as Michael's rainbow tour that he uh, just talked about. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to get that line in. Anyway, um, Fiddler of Miracle of Miracles is uh, a terrific documentary. It's going to be opening uh, August 23rd, and it's going to be in 41 cities. And more I cannot wish you than you're in one of the cities where it's playing. So it starts off, I'm pretty sure, with Sheldon Harnick actually playing the violin, uh, fiddling, uh, on a roof yet, uh, probably his uh, Central Park home. Um, But uh, we do see a lot of footage from various Fiddler productions, though I could be wrong. Um, But I didn't see anything from that Alfred Molina production um, shown, though Harvey Firestein, who took over in that production, does have a lot to say in this uh, movie and all of it quite worthy. Uh, We're reminded that Danny Burstyn uh, had the controversial red jacket um, in uh, the most recent Broadway revival. But there are so many wonderful perceptions by various people, such as Joel Gray, who says, everybody thinks the Fiddler of the Roof 
is about them, meaning their um, ethnic group or their um, background. So, uh, and of course, Joel Gray uh, directed brilliantly the current off-Broadway Yiddish language revival. So, uh, this is some political commentary in there too. Uh, Alexander Silver says that Fiddler deals with dark times, just like we have now. Um, we hear dropped lyrics from tradition, which is a lot of fun. Um, <clears throat> we find out that they actually weren't planning originally uh, to adapt uh, Shalom Aleichem's Tebya stories, that uh, they were attracted to a, a, a book called Wandering Star, which was about a peripatetic acting group, which does sound like it'd be fun to uh, see what uh, an acting group in, the, in, in um, 19th century, early 20th century Russia would be like. So if anybody's looking for a property to adapt, maybe a Wandering Star, uh, Shalom Aleichem's novel would be worth looking into. But Anyway, um, once they started looking, somebody said, I think it was Joe Stein, actually, who said, uh, who's the book writer, um, said, yeah, maybe we should look at the Tevye stories. So um, that happened. Uh, it's nice to see uh, we go to Kiev. We go to Anatevka. It's a real place. And um, there's a museum there now. There's a statue of Shalom Aleichem in Kiev. But um, it's very nice to even see that a weather vane uh, doesn't have a rooster on it. You have to look quick for this, but actually has a fiddler fiddling um, as as the weather vane, uh, you know, north, south, east, west type weather vane. So, um, the little town where Papa came from is a song that we hear a little of. That of course never made it into the um, final version. Sheldon Harnick said, I hope people don't read Shalom Aleichem too much because I stole a lot from him. Um, and, uh, well, if so, I, th I think uh, the spirit of Shalom Aleichem should be very grateful that certainly, I don't know how many people would know Shalom Aleichem if it weren't for Fiddler on the Roof. So um, we see the uh, original script, the um, when scripts used to be done by studio duplicating service, uh, that distinctive uh, typeface. And um, we see the sh when the show was simply called Tevya. And I remember the first ad for the show in Variety, actually, um, the last issue of um, the year, 1963, there was a, a banner ad at the very bottom of the page, the last uh, page of Variety, saying, coming soon, Harold Prince and Fred Coe uh, producing Tevya. Uh, Fred Coe dropped out, and I'm sure he was a Broadway producer at the time. He produced The Thousand Clowns, other shows too. But I'm sure he's um, was ultimately disappointed that uh, he didn't wind up doing Fiddler. I don't know the story. I don't know if he dropped out or if um, Harold Prince said, um, "I, I got to do it alone." I don't know what happened. But uh, but anyway, um, and um, Hal Prince is in the documentary too, and he pointed out the people in the show dance not because it's time to do a number, but because uh, it's really endemic to the action. So that's really good. Um, Joe Stein admits, uh, you know, for all the difficulties we hear about Jerome Robbins, um, oh, let me say this, at the screening, um, there was talk of, you know, Joe Stein and people applauded and talk of Jerry Bach and people applauded and Sheldon Harnick, who was there, people applauded Jerome Robbins, not a sound. I mean, I'm telling you, you know, <laughs> people still have hard feelings about Jerome Robbins, but Joe Stein admitted when they went to this, uh, Orthodox Jewish wedding and one guy had a bottle on his head, uh, in his hat, uh, dancing. One guy, um, Joe Stein said, I looked at that and I said, oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. While Jerome Robbins said, ooh, I see possibilities here. Let's have a bottle dance. So um, 
that's uh, that's something too that uh, reminds us that Jerome Robbins uh, was able to see things that his book writer was not. Um, Bartlett Sher has a nice line when he says uh, that dance is really a marriage between a bottle and a man. I like that line. So, um, so um, Stein did talk about how difficult Robbins could be in the sense that I like your scene very much, but you've just given me, I like it. Now, can you rewrite it? And um, after he wrote it, yeah, yeah, this is good. Yeah, good for you. Yeah, I like the first one better. You know, so he said he drove him crazy. But of course, it, uh, everybody said that Jerome Robbins drove you crazy, but he got the best he could possibly get out of you. So um, uh, Sondheim is there too, even though he had nothing to do with Fiddler, saying one became more inventive when working with the incredibly inventive Jerome Robbins. And of course, they worked on two shows together. Um, yeah, Harvey Feinstein is really quite charming in this where he talks about Tebbia and God being best friends that they talk all the time that he's really the only man in Tebbia's life that never occurred to me that uh, the only man in Tebbia's life yeah I mean sure he goes to the, the tavern you know, because Laser Wolf asks him to go there but we don't see him have very much of a relationship with the other men in town even in that little scene where um, he says you're right you're right too uh, how can they both be right? Uh, you're right, too. I mean, it seems like a very casual conversation. They don't really feel like great friends. They really feel like people who are you know, almost like at the office water cooler, that type of thing. So um, we hear a lot of different interpretations of some of the songs. I mean, did you know I did not that the Temptations, yeah, those people who are mentioned in Ain't Too Proud, actually recorded If I Were a Rich Man? I didn't know that. Maybe you did, but I certainly didn't. Uh, we also get um, uh, scenes from school productions and foreign productions, which is really quite nice, too. And we also get Austin Pendleton saying, boy, I was convinced we'd be looking for work in a couple of months. I didn't think the show was going to go over at all, especially uh, when the Detroit tryout wasn't a triumph. Uh, it was a triumph when they went to Washington. But uh, the first leg of the tryout, um, for one thing, there was a newspaper strike. And so, but when they found out what the critics thought, um, the critics weren't so enthusiastic. So, um, um, <clears throat> so we find out little details like Topol, uh, who was Tevye in the movie, had a toothache while filming If I Were a Rich Man over three days. I don't know why he didn't get it taken care of the first one. Lin-Manuel Miranda shows up. Yeah, there's a very nice moment with him and his father-in-law. I'm not going to say more about that, but... Uh, but Ted Sperling, the conductor, shows up and he points out the fact that um, most musicals about boy meets girl. And while there's some of that in there, the main event um, here is the relationship between uh, Tevye and Golda. And, um, and certainly Do You Love Me is uh, one of the uh, most effective scenes in the show. And when you think of it, you know, I mean, um, the other people are in young love, which, uh, of course, can last or not last, as we uh, have seen so many times. Um, I don't know what the divorce rate in Anatevka was, but in this country we hear it's 50%. So under those circumstances, uh, here we have a marriage. This lasted 25 years. Yes, it was an arranged marriage, but we really do get the impression that they have come to love each other, which is really nice. Um, so um, you even uh, seeing Anatevka today is kind of interesting. Um, I'm sure a lot of people think that it was really a fictional town, but... Uh, but Jessica Hecht has a nice line when she says, I don't think there's a show that makes more of a connection to more people. And um, I started thinking about that. And um, I, I don't know. Um, I, I, I thought maybe Chorus Line, maybe. But uh, whatever the case may be, even if it's not 
uh, the top can, uh, in in first place for being the show that makes more of a connection to more people. Fiddler's right up there. So August 23rd, pay attention. See if your city is one of them. See if you're in driving distance of a city. Because it's really such a heartwarming documentary. And uh, I was crazy about it. Peter, the uh, documentary is produced by a company called Roadside Attractions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was looking at the Roadside Attractions website. And I, uh, they're a very interesting producing company. I, I don't really know much, if anything, about them. But aside from their current offering of, of Fiddler... They also are coming up with this um, uh, documentary of, of uh, Judy uh, with Renee Zellweger. Do you, are you guys aware of Oh, this, I know uh, about that. Yeah, yeah. It's not, a, it's not a documentary. It's not a documentary. It's uh, a dramatization. Yes, based on that play, that hateful play. Um, <laughs> that, that was on I'm Broadway. I'm starting to remember that. I thought we weren't going to talk about that anymore. <laughs> I, I don't know if I agree to that. That's <laughs> and as far as Fiddler, that's right. I, that's right. I was to be silenced. Right. Okay. But as far as Fiddler, deal. As far as Fiddler, um, <laughs> I mean, can't wait to see this. Although I am sorry to hear that there are actually that many people from that specific production, that Bartlett Shear production, because again, that I think was kind of a desecration of that show. So I much rather stick with the current one, and I hope. Uh, that there are more people from this one. So there's also another film called uh, uh, Marianne and Leonard, Words of Love, which is about uh, Leonard Cohn and uh, his uh, partner Marianne Illen, I-H-L-E-N. I don't know uh, her. But uh, Leonard Cohn, of course, uh, uh, theater fans may know his music more than his writing. But uh, it seems like a very interesting film company to doing little uh, uh, little projects. Well, I shouldn't say little projects, but projects that are related to uh, uh, things that may not seem to be big, uh, geared towards big commercial audiences. Certainly, not a lot of car chases and explosions in the Fiddler film. I don't think. Right. So. <laughs> All right. So let's uh, move forward into uh, Michael. You saw Tellily Young at uh, Fifty Four Below in his quartet. So tell us about that. Yes, Telly Young is a very talented fellow who actually was a guest on our show twice. Yeah, a few I, times, I looked yeah. it up. Uh, well, at least tw- I, I found, let's see, November 15th, 2015, December 4th, 2016. He's always working, uh, so I guess that's why he had him on, uh, you know, uh, more than once. And he, you know, his credit – actually, let me read that little um, – uh, promo for this show because it, it tells you a lot and it's well written. Uh, Broadway's Telly Leung, Aladdin, Allegiance, Godspell, Rent, and Glee returns to Feinstein's 54 Below with a brand new show and fresh innovative arrangements of Broadway's tunes done with a trio of New York's finest musicians, Gary Adler, piano, Marianne McSweeney, bass, and Michael Kreuter, drums. Prepare to hear some of your favorite show tunes by Sondheim, Rodgers and Hammerstein, Kander and Ebb, Alan Menken, Gershwin Porter, and more, creatively fused with jazz to create a whole new experience for jazz and theater fans alike it's quote ethel merman meets miles davis <laughs> unquote in this evening of musical exploration um 
Oh, Telly will also be joined at his performances by special guest Leo Ash Evans, Jesus Christ Superstar, Shuffle Along, School of Rock. Uh, And this really was a model uh, cabaret show or club show, whatever you want to call it. Uh, As my my friend Kevin McInerney said after we had seen it, we were really looking forward to it because we're both big fans of Telly. Um, The... uh, there were many, many highlights. Oh, uh, let me say, first of all, that uh, this is the first time that I've seen the Telly Leung Quartet, but apparently they have been recording, uh, performing and recording together for a bit, and they really seem uh, to have a wonderful symbiosis, the way they, the way they all work together. Um, I think uh, that, for example, the arrangements... Uh, I get the impression that, 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 that to a certain extent they're a collaboration and there were some really, really, really wonderful arrangements. The first number was Hello Young Lovers from The King and I, which uh, uh, Telly has been in in The King and I uh, more than one production, but never, of course, sang that song because it wouldn't have been his character. But I, I marvel again, first of all, at – the beauty of that song, and specifically the, the the melody and the harmonization, it's just I don't I don't know enough quite enough technically about music to to talk about what makes the harmonization of that song so beautiful. But there are moments where uh, the next note that you hear and the and the harmony uh, you know that you hear the chord behind it are not exactly what you thought was going to happen, but is actually much better. And it really was genius for Richard Rogers, who, uh, and that's why I think um, that when you do hear Rogers in jazz, uh, those types of recordings, that they they tend to be really wonderful because um, the music is complex enough in a good way to allow for that, uh, whereas maybe some uh, some other composers uh, are not uh, – maybe the, the, the melodies and harmonization are sim- more simplistic and maybe don't quite uh, stand up to that kind of treatment as well. But this was just great. This was an up-tempo version of Hello, Young Lovers. Now, you would think it's the last song. <laughs> in the world that you would ever want to hear in Uptempo. It's a, in the show, of course, it's a beautiful, lovely, lyrical rem- reminiscence of Anna, of her her love affair with her husband, who is now deceased. And it's, it's very touching and beautiful and, and light, and, and uh, it's usually in 3-4. Uh, but this was completely different, and it just worked fabulously. Another... Um, brilliant new arrangement was of Love Look Away from Flower Drum Song, another Rodgers and Hammerstein song. And that was done um, uh, by Telly and the quartet as if uh, the singer was very angry. Uh, now, again, in, in that show, it's a, it's a tremendously sad song uh, of unrequited love. But here, if you, you know, if you think of the lyrics, it's love, look away, love, look away from me, fly when you pass my door, fly and get lost at sea. The, the, the unrequited uh, love person is telling the other person, telling them, uh, don't, don't look at me. Uh, you know, if I can't have you, just don't look at me. I don't want you to to be in my life. And and I think that certainly, uh, can, you know, it justifies an angry interpretation, though I had never heard of that before. Um, and there were so many other highlights in the show. Uh, uh, wonderful 
uh, unexpected arrangements, uh, uh, jazzy and and very very innovative and original arrangements of everything from Broadway Baby to Before the Parade Passes By, uh, the, the beautiful song You're Nearer from Too Many Girls, uh, which I know uh, I knew came to know at first primarily because it was inserted into uh, uh, a revision of Babes in Arms that that was done in in the fifties. It never reached Broadway, but it was done elsewhere and was licensed. Um, for many years may still be licensed for performance by, you know, amateur groups and uh, et cetera. Um, and I had been in actually three different productions of that show. So that's a beautiful song that I myself used to sing actually with a friend of mine. And so to hear Telly do it at 54 below, especially since it's quite a, you know, I, I you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's done that often. Uh, that was a, a highlight for me. Um, married, uh, from cabaret uh, into a, a midley med, a mini mini medley with we can make it from the rink that uh, telly sang as a tribute to his partner um and uh oh telly did getting married today uh the the very rapid 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 fire patter section from company uh mentioning that uh, now there's a uh, even more of a precedent for that because, of course, the, the recent London production, which we hear is coming to New York, has a, a bridegroom uh, rather than a bride uh, singing that those incredible lyrics. And I have to say, Telly did the fastest version I have ever heard, but every single syllable and every word was completely crystal clear. Um, Not a Day Goes By, lots of other wonderful songs. And uh, I must mention the encore, which... Uh, was well oh oh first of all i must mention that uh telly's duet with his friend uh, and, and and previous castmate Leo Ash Evans was for good from wicked and and that again it was uh it was the best version of that i've ever heard uh, they they seem to have a really really close, wonderful, beautiful friendship. And every iota of that, I think, came through in the song, which um, I've said before and I've said it again. Every time I, time I hear a song from Wicked out of context, it, it strikes me as more beautiful and more effective than when I show, saw the show originally. I don't know if that's because... Uh, I think the show is overproduced, perhaps, uh, which is understandable given the barn that it plays in. But um, but that's just an observation. And it and it, it it never fails every time I hear a song out of context in a in a smaller venue like a cabaret uh, or, a you know, a, a benefit performance in a in a in a smaller theater. It uh, they have all come across as better. So I think I, I really <laughs> maybe should revisit the entire Wicked score and listen to it um, top to bottom and, and see uh, how I feel about it now, as opposed to my initial reaction to it, which was not that great. Um, uh, and then, yes, the encore was uh, really fun because uh, Telly, uh, as I'm sure all our listeners know, wound up going into the title role of Aladdin on Broadway uh, for, for a, uh, quite a a long stint and I did not see him in it. I I'm sorry. I didn't because I, I imagine he was just perfect for the role, but he sang, um, he noted the fact that Aladdin, like many other Disney shows has been done all over the world. And then he sang a whole new world in about five or six different languages <laughs> uh, from well, Spanish to Chinese and Japanese, um, uh, 
I think there was Italian in there, and he uh, he must have really worked on it because it's the, all the the pronunciation sounded wonderful to me and and pretty pretty perfect. So that was a wonderful evening at Feinstein's Fifty Four Below, which continues to do great shows. Uh, Often two different shows, two or sometimes three different shows a night. Uh, you could you could fill up your <laughs> your uh, entertainment calendar only by seeing shows at Feinstein's Fifty Four Below. Uh, but of course, there are other wonderful places that we mentioned many times: uh, the Green Room Forty Two and the the New Theater at Birdland, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, they keep these places in mind, uh, um, especially in the summer uh, when Broadway and, and even off-Broadway tend to be a little quieter. All right. So, uh, Peter, you got down to the Cherry Lane Theater to see Jacqueline Novak get on your knees. So uh, tell us about this show. Well, um, everybody has this experience sometime in life when you're in an audience that's going crazy for a show and you don't even crack a smile. Uh, one of my favorite people in the world, David Barber, was sitting in front of me and was laughing so hard that he had to take off his glasses and wipe his eyes. <laughs> so um, so under those circumstances, please understand this is a minority report, but not even, don't listen to me. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm obviously not in tune with what Jacqueline Novak is doing. However... She's very appealing. She has a wonderful smile, uh, and uh, she knows how to command a stage. But what I, I don't think I'm being prudish here because I mean it's 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 not a problem for me to hear um, anybody talk about um, filleting anybody or the the dangers thereof or the hazards thereof. Or she tells a story about how she started when she was 16 years old um, with her boyfriend and so on and so forth. So yeah, it it that's what it's really a stand up act. Uh, there's even um, a stand up microphone that she to be fair, dispenses with the shot water and uses uh, a handheld mic. She takes it out and then just, um, she must walk a, a mile or two during each performance. She goes back and forth and back and forth. But um, really the audience was convulsed um, just wonderfully having a great time hearing uh, her observations about um, penises and vaginas and, and such matters. Um, it, it just wasn't uh, on my wavelength and um, so be it. But I'll tell you, Jacqueline Norman has a very nice reputation. Um, so if you know her um, work, uh, I do think you're going to have a wonderful time. If, if you like her work, of course. But I do think you'll have a wonderful time at it. Um, I, I wish I could be more enthusiastic. I can't. But boy, that audience couldn't have been more enthusiastic. Uh, they couldn't wait to cheer her like crazy at the end. It was titanic. And uh, every seat in the Cherry Lane was filled, and smiles were abounding as I was walking out. So um, so uh, don't listen to me. Have a great time. Okay, so that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. iHeartRadio places, TuneIn places, Stitcher places, Google Play places, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you can get to Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as uh, links to some of the things we've talked about today. I have uh, a link to the trailer for Fiddler, A Miracle of Miracles in there, so you can get a, a two-minute view of what's going on oh, there. Uh, and uh, so, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia question? Yes, I asked, what do these songs have in common? Here's Love from Here's Love, 
When It Dries from 2 by 2 Song of the Sand from La Caja Full, Popular from Wicked, A Musical from Something Rotten, and Do Something from Honeymoon in Vegas. And um, they all have uh, la-da-das, la-di-das, ah-ahs, da-das um, in their lyrics um, instead of words at some point in time. So Tony Janicki, of course, was the first to get it, followed by Mike Meany and Scott McQuiston. So uh, they did very well by this. And uh, let's see if they and all the others can do well by this one. His name is on more than one wildly successful movie musical. In the decade before those came along, his name was in the credits of a very different kind of non-musical film. That film is mentioned in the opening song of a musical that was an enormous hit on stage in London, but a quick failure here. Who's the man? The movie musicals the non-movie musical, and the cult musical. Okay, if you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com, and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. the taste of something strange and here's this man right here beside me